All right, let's take our Bibles and return to the book of Matthew, chapter 1. And we're going to again be reading verses 18 through 25. Our message this morning is going to concentrate on verses 20 and 21, specifically on the reason why Jesus was named Jesus. Very, very important in light of our culture today. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When His mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretively. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means, God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep, and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. As has been mentioned, we have seen in chapter 1, verse 1, the genesis or the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah or Jesus the Christ. That same phrase is repeated in verse 18. Now the genesis, here it's translated birth, now the genesis of Jesus Christ or Jesus the Messiah was as follows. So in the first 17 verses, we have his earthly descent, that is his Davidic, Abrahamic descent. That is, he is the promised king that God had promised beginning in the Garden of Eden after the fall all the way through Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant and of his seed, and that is of David himself, that David was promised that he would sit on the throne of David and his kingdom would have no what? It would have no end. In other words, it would never be overthrown. And you think about what a wonderful promise that is. And the privilege, and even David confesses this, the privilege of David being in that genesis or in that genealogy. And we saw in that early descent in verse 16 that we have all this descendant through the Father. And in verse 16, it says, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and I'm just going to put in the gender here, by Mary, Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. And of course, once you see that, if you're an astute reader of the Bible, or especially if you're Jewish, and you're reading down through here in this genealogy, and it's father begatting, father begatting, father begatting, and then all of a sudden you have a woman begatting. Immediately, you would ask yourself, hmm, why is that? And if you're versed in your Old Testament, then it gives the implication that what we have here with Mary is actually the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15, and that is God promised that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the, of the serpent. And so in verses 18 and following, what we have is an explanation of this anomaly in this genealogy. 
What does it mean when it says that Joseph was the husband of Mary and by Mary Jesus was born who is called the Messiah? Well, it's like this, verse 18. Now here's the birth or the genesis of this man. And what you'll find here in this passage is an emphasis, and it is the primary thing that we're to walk away in light of all the questions that we may have about a virgin conception. The point of verses 18 through 25 is that Mary was a virgin and that this birth was of a virgin and it was of the seed of the woman. You may want to underline these in your Bible, but notice in verse 18 this phrase, before they came together. And that's telling us that she was a what? She was a virgin. You have again in verse 18, she was found to be with child, not by Joseph and not by another man, but by who? The Holy Spirit. Again, that emphasis on her virginity. You have it hinted at in verse 19. Here's Joseph wanting to send her away secretively, but it says, and Joseph, her husband. It doesn't say Joseph, Jesus' father, but Joseph, her husband. Again, you have in verse 20, at the end of that verse, for the child who has been conceived in her is by who? It's by the Holy Spirit. It is of the Holy Spirit. You have it again with the prophecy from Isaiah, verse 23. Behold, look at this. The virgin, implying there's only going to be one of these, the virgin shall be with child, there's the conception, and she will bring forth a child, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translates God with us. And then we have the last emphasis in verse 25. Joseph taking Mary as his wife, verse 25, but kept her a virgin until when? Until Jesus had been born. And so that implies that she was not a virgin after Jesus was born. And in fact, we know from the Gospels that Jesus had brothers and sisters. So here you have this grand emphasis that we are beholding. And what we're doing is, is we're just going through here a little bit slower just to be able to see this emphasis and the wonder of it all that is sitting here before us. This genesis of the second Adam and the uniqueness of him, verse 23, is that because his conception was by the Holy Spirit, it was a new creation. And he is the second Adam. And as you well know, the first Adam was granted dominion over how many things? All things. And he lost that dominion. And now you have the second Adam, and he's going to be given dominion, and we call that by this word, kingship. He's going to be Lord over all the universe, over all creation, visible, invisible. He is having the ultimate dominion. And that dominion shall have no what? No end. And his name, and here's the marvelous thing is, his name is Emmanuel. Now in the Old Testament, names were given as descriptions or prayers. We know his name is who? We call him Jesus, right? So we don't go around saying he's Emmanuel, he's Emmanuel. But that is who he is. He is Emmanuel. Well, what does that word mean? God with who? God with us. And here we have the first hint that Matthew brings of his deity. And he's letting us know that he's not merely just a special man. He is the God man. 
He is fully man, and He's fully who? Fully God. And in fact, in Luke, when the angel speaks to Mary, and Mary asked, how can this thing be, since I am a virgin? The angel answers her and says this, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason, don't miss that, for that reason, the Holy Child this set-apart child shall be called the Son of who? The Son of God. God with us. And of course, Jesus kept saying that to the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin and the Sadducees and the Herodians. He kept saying that to the people. I am the Son of God. And it was for that reason that He was put on a cross. So we had this marvelous virgin conception and virgin birth of this holy child. Now we saw last Lord's Day that Mary really was put into a dilemma. And she probably wasn't aware of this at the beginning and you probably as a lady would not be also. You would just be overjoyed that here you have this special privilege of bringing into the world the promised Messiah. But it became very evident that in that package of God-favoredness was reproach. A reproach that would humble her. And so here she is, verse 18. She is aware I think the angel reminded her of this when he spoke to her, but she's probably already knew of the uh, miraculous conception of John the Baptist with Elizabeth. She goes to her. The angel reminds her of this. She goes to her. She stays with her six months. She's now three months around pregnant, around three or four months. Ladies begin to really show, depending on if this is their first child or second. And here she is, and she comes back, and she is found to be with a child. And of course, you can imagine the talk of the town. Mary was known for her godliness. She was known for being a follower of the Lord. And here she is being publicly spoken against. And we saw last week that this reproach did not go away. That even the people of Israel brought up to our Lord, well, we haven't been born in fornication. This shame, which was untrue, But this shame lay with her all the days of her life. And perhaps, just kind of reading into the text here, perhaps there would have been no more nervous moment for her than when she had to have a meeting with Joseph. Now you can imagine... She had to tell Joseph of this conception. I want you to turn to the book of Luke, chapter 1. And I want to read through what she would have told him. She would have begun to relate to him In Luke 1, verse 26, that sometime around the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, that there was sent to her an angel named Gabriel. And he was sent to her, verse 28, very interesting phrase, and coming in. 
Now, if you just re read that, how would you naturally read that? Well, it's not that he appeared, but he came in implying that he probably what? He probably, he probably came into the courtyard or, you know, he met her in whatever location she was in. In verse 28, and coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. She would have related to Joseph about her perplexity. Verse 29. That there was a little interval between that salutation that Gabriel gave to her and the continuing on of his speech. She was perplexed. She was confused. And Verse 29. And she kept thinking about what kind of salutation is this? <laughs> this isn't the normal salutation. Normal Jewish salutation would have been shalom. Peace be unto you. This isn't what Gabriel said. And so she was pondering about this. Verse 30. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. So was she fearful? She was shaking on the inside. Who is this? What is this greeting that he gave? Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. That's the reason why he said, O favored one. Verse 31, And behold, listen to this, Mary, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. And she isn't going to go and get a pregnancy test to find out that she's pregnant. And she's not going to go and get a DNA test or an x-ray of her womb to find out that it's a male child. It was all told to her even before her conception. He, she was also told his name. She had no choice of the name. It was divinely given. And the angel reminds her, verse 32, about who this child will be. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. There's the reference to His deity again. And the Lord God will give Him the throne of His father David. Now Mary was of the lineage of David. And He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and His kingdom will have no end. Not only is that a very condensed version with packed with information in it, but in the giving of that statement, Mary, being a biblically versed woman, as we saw last week, would have had a flood of Old Testament prophecies and promises enter into her heart and mind. There would be verses which each one of these statements. And because of that, <clears throat> she receives it as it's given. But of course, ladies, you would have done the same thing. The issue is, well, this is great. And this is good. And this is what every Jewish woman has wanted ever since the days of Adam and Eve. But how is this going to be? Because Joseph and I have not come together in marriage. She would have known that Joseph was of the lineage of David. We haven't come together in marriage. Our marriage has not been consummated. We are betrothed or engaged. How is this going to happen? And Mary did not ask that in the spirit of unbelief. She asked that in the spirit of, okay, you've said that this is going to happen, now I need to know how this is going to happen. And so she's telling this to Joseph. And so she would have told Joseph, well, I asked the angel, how shall this be? Because I am a virgin. She's telling Joseph, 
I have not been in adultery. I've not been with any other man. I am still pure. And the angel says to her, and Mary relates this to Joseph, verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Now, I don't know if she thought about this, but this verse could have conjured up in her heart the original creation. The Spirit hovering over the creative materials. The Holy Spirit will overshadow you and the power of the Most High will come. That's how this new creation is going to happen, Mary. This is how it's going to be a virgin conception. It will be a new thing on the earth. It will be a marvelous thing in the eyes of the Lord and in all those who behold it. And because of that, because of this new creation, the seed of the woman and its creation by the Spirit of God, it is for that reason this sanctified, unique, holy child shall be called the Son of God. And I can imagine at this point, men, I don't know what you would be thinking. <laughs> you may be thinking, what a story. How did you come up with that one? You might have been thinking, I don't hardly believe it, but Mary's a godly woman. <laughs> she has credibility in my eyes, right? And she still had credibility in his eyes because he was going to put her away or he was going to divorce her how? Not by public reproach, but secretively. Not sure what he was thinking, but then Mary would have related to Joseph this fact, verse 36 of Luke 1. Joseph, you know that my relative Elizabeth has conceived a son when? In her old age, just like Sarah. And she who was called barren, this is the way people labeled her. Dead womb. Barren. No fruit. That woman who was labeled with that label is now in the sixth month of her pregnancy. Now Mary, think about this. And Joseph... Here's these words from Mary. The angel told me, nothing is impossible with God. And then Mary said to Joseph, I told the angel, Behold, I am your slave. I am owned by you. I am yours. Do with me as you will. May it be done to me according to your word. <coughs> My guess would have been is that Joseph would have never conjured up that this was the reason she was found with child. I wonder what the room was like when Mary finished talking. <laughs> you think it would, might have been quiet for a little bit? Maybe his mouth dropped? <laughs> I'm sure, and I'm reading into the text here, I am sure that probably there might have been a flood of Scripture and prophecies come into his mind at this point?
But what it caused in his heart was anxiety. You'll notice in Matthew chapter 1 that Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away. Now note verse 20. When he had considered this, So he's in perplexity and he is full of anxiety over this providence that has now come, entered into his life. And the way I read this is, is he's trying to reconcile what Mary had spoken to him with the scriptures, with the law, what he was going to do. Evidently, in his anxiety and perplexity and confusion over this, there was that credibility of Mary herself because he wasn't going to make her a public reproach. And when he came to this conclusion, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to divorce her. But I'm going to do it in a private manner. And folks, he came to that conclusion because he was a what type of man? He was a righteous man. So folks, that conclusion had righteousness associated with it. But was it the right conclusion that he should have concluded? (laughs) The answer to that is no. What happens in verse 20 is that when he was giving thought to this, that is, not wanting to disgrace her and coming to this deliberation that he was going to send her away privately, Joseph went to sleep. Now, he could have taken a nap during the day, Or this could have been at night. We don't know. We just know that the angel came to him not with a visual visitation. That's what Mary had. The angel came in to the room or the place where she was. Joseph was given his message by a what? A dream. And when do we dream? We dream at night when we're asleep. If you're having one of these and you're awake, you call it a vision. But here was a dream. And that dream was given to him to alleviate his fears about the conclusion that he had come to. What did the angel say? First of all, he reminded Joseph of his lineage. Joseph, the son of who? Of David. That should have given him a measure of assurance that what Mary was speaking to him really was of the Lord. Because this promised Messiah King would come through whose lineage? David. And Mary was of the lineage of David. And Joseph was of the lineage of David. One through Solomon, one through Nathan. So here we have his reminding of this and the angel telling him, don't be afraid to consummate this betrothal with Mary. Don't be afraid to take her into your home as your wife because, verse 20, there is a child, but the child who has been conceived, this virgin conception that is in her is of the Holy Spirit. We would say today that the Spirit of God created life in this ovum of the egg of this woman. 
apart from the seed of a man. And she will bear forth a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. So he has a confirmation of what Mary has said. Mary was told of her virgin conception, right? Mary had been told how this was going to happen. Did it happen? It did happen. She's now showing at three or four months of her pregnancy. It was also confirmed there would be a male child. And it was also confirmed, Mary's words, of his name. She was told, for this reason, the holy child shall be named Jesus. And he would be called the Son of God. But Joseph has said, his name is Jesus, and here's why. He shall save his people from their sins. This is an amazing thing. And folks, this isn't a thing that you can go in the Scripture and name it, claim it for yourself. This is unique. This is one of a kind. Never to be what? Never to be repeated. But foretold from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, all the way down through the thousands of years. And folks, this just speaks of God's faithfulness. Don't ever think to yourself, that God has forgot a promise. He is not a man. How many promises have you forgotten? I've forgotten promises I don't even remember I made. My kids would say to me years later, but Dad, you promised that you would do this. And I would say, did I say that? And of course they would say, of course. And I would go off privately and I would ask my wife, did I say that? She'd say, yes. God doesn't forget His promises. And He didn't forget. And all of the genealogy and all of human history and all the promise of God was all driving to the fullness of time at this point of human history. And folks, I just want to remind you that right now, all of human history and all of human providence in our life is all driving to another event and that's His second coming. God has not forgot His promises that He has promised. And the fact that Joseph was to name His name indicated that although he was not the father of the Lord Jesus, he was the legal father of the Lord Jesus. It was the father who named the name. And you remember, Zacharias said, they came to him and said, what's his name? And he said, his name shall be John. It's the father to name something is to exert authority over it. Like Adam naming the animals. He was exerting his dominion over the creation. And folks, it is a gift, is it not, that when we see Him, our Lord is going to give us a new name that exerts His dominion over us as His servant. What is His name? His name is Jesus. Why was He given that name? Verse 21. Here's the reason. You shall call His name Jesus because, or for, He will save His people from their sins. And of course, we looked at Psalm 130 and verse 8 in our Scripture reading about exactly how close this is. And the reason why Matthew, I think, interjected his people instead of Israel is because we will come to understand 
that this message is to be taken into all the what? All the world. And the true Israel will be made up of Jew and Gentile. You shall name Him Jesus because this describes who He is. A Savior of His people from their what? Sins. Now folks, that is the nature of His calling. The nature of His calling our Lord Jesus Christ is to save people from their sins. That is the nature of who He is. That is the nature of His kingship right now. He will rule and reign on the earth in a thousand year earthly reign on a literal throne of David. But right now, His throne is at the right hand of God. You say, what is He doing? He's saving people from their sins. That's what He's doing. (coughs) And folks, what that means, among other things, and I'm going to make some applications here, It means that it is He and He alone who deals with our sins. If you want to be delivered from your sins, who do you go to? You go to the One whose name, His nature of His calling is to save people from their sins. This salvation is outside of us. Some people call it an alien righteousness. Meaning alien, not native to who? Not native to me. You don't look to yourself to save you from your sins. You don't look to good works to save you from your sins. We read in Psalm 130, even the writer of that psalm said to the Lord, if you would mark my iniquities, and he was a believer, I would not stand. The one, the God-ordained man, who has been foretold and ordained and appointed by God the Father to deal with our sins is this one whose name is Emmanuel, this one whose name is Jesus the Messiah. He and He alone. And this is exactly what Peter says in one of his preaching. There is no other name under heaven by which we may be saved, understood, saved from what? Our sins, than Jesus Christ. That's it. Not human effort, not human prayers, not human endeavor, not human government, not family, not anything not myself, not anyone else, but Him and He alone. He's the only one that can save us from the punishment and guilt of sin. Punishment is condemnation. The punishment is what is called the second death. Even as believers, we struggle with guilt over our iniquities and our sins. What is the remedy to that guilt? Jesus Christ the Messiah. It's not me adding more works to try to get rid of that guilt. It's Him. It's His Gospel. 
That's why He's good news. He's the one that saves us from the punishment and guilt of sin. We call that justification. He's the one that is saving believers from their sins right now. He's the one who is saving believers from the power of sin and the effect of sin in our life. That's what He's doing. He has dominion. Having dominion over creation is nothing compared with having dominion over sin and the ability and the power to save us from it. And then one day, <clears throat> this one whose name is Jesus is going to call us to Himself. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. That calling to Himself could be by our bodily death. It could be by His second coming. But in any case, when that happens, and He calls us unto Himself, at that moment, He is saving us from our sins. He will be saving us from the very presence of sin. And the very fact that we possess in our flesh this sinful nature. And He will be saving us from death itself because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord how long? Well, I'll word it this way, as long as He reigns. And how long will He have dominion? Forever. These are things that are done to people who believe into Him. And folks, what that means for us is this, that every circumstance of our life, now you may have to think about this, every circumstance of our life and every providence that enters into our life is designed to do two things. It is designed, number one, to deliver you from your sins. And don't think that you don't have sins that need to be dealt with. And every circumstance and providence of our life is designed, number two, to mature you into His image. Folks, what it is, is this illustration. When you take gold and you want to purify it. What does it mean to purify gold? It means to remove its what? Its impurities. Its uncleanness. It's still gold, isn't it? But you want to purify it. How would you purify gold? Well, you put it into the fire. And when it gets to that right temperature, that molten gold turns into liquid. And you put it under the right temperature, and what comes to the top is the impurities. And what a goldsmith will do is he will remove the impurities, leaving the what? Leaving the gold. Every believer has impurities. I do. You do. The psalmist of Psalm 130 did. 
Every aspect of our life has impurities. When Peter wrote about this, this is what he said. The trial of your faith Your faith has impurities in it. You have believed on the Lord and He has saved you from your sins. But now He is going to be saving you, right? Every aspect of our lives has impurities in it, even our faith. And so what the Lord does is He heats up our circumstances. And as a believer, what you will see is the impurities. Everybody following me? If you only look at the impurities you're going to wonder if you know the Lord or not. You've got to look at the gold. It only takes faith as little as a what kind of seed? As a mustard seed to be the channel of God's saving grace. But we are full of impurities. And sometimes when the Lord heats this up in our life, a lot of impurities come to the top. Sometimes there's just a few impurities. But what the Lord wants to do is to purify our faith. And this is exactly what John writes in the book of 1 John. That people who know the Lord is pure. You hear the word? People who know the Lord is pure purify themselves. He has no impurities. We're the ones that have impurities. Where am I going to go to get forgiveness for those impurities? Where does the psalmist say? Oh Lord, You're the one who forgives my sins so that I might fear You. It's Jesus Christ the Lord whose nature of His calling is to save people from their sins. Isaiah writes, Am I not the Lord? There is no God beside me. I am a just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Where else are you going to go? Some lifeless idol? Some inner light? And that's what people are doing today. They're told to save themselves by looking inward. And their flesh gives them some measure of success and delight for a while, but the ultimate end of that is darkness. And folks, my wife was telling me the other day, several weeks ago, I forgot what the percentage was, but it was something like over 50% of the children in our public school today are on antidepressants. Is it higher than that? Okay. These are children. They haven't even come into the hardships of life yet. Now I'm not against those medicines where they're needed, but that many? That's amazing. John the Baptist saw Jesus coming to him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the what? The sin of the world. 
In Acts chapter 3, verse 26, in the preaching, he says, Unto you first God, having raised up His Son Jesus, sent Him to bless you in turning every one of you away from His iniquities. This is what He does. And in the book of Ephesians, he talks about that Jesus is to present us holy. Now listen to this. He's going to present us holy, unblameable, unreproachable in His sight. What does that mean? He's doing what His name says. He is saving people from His sins. Titus chapter 2, verse 14. He gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto Himself. Purify unto Himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. And Hebrews says He ever lives making intercession for every believer so that they would be saved King James says, to the what? To the uttermost. This is His calling. Now what that means is, is that many of the things that are popular in Christian circles today are not in agreement with that calling. There are people who have, quote, come to Jesus because they want to be successful. That's not His calling. He certainly is the one that gives success, right? But that's not His calling. That's not what He's called to do. That's not what He's going to do. He's not here to give you success. I read a whole story about a young man who his whole life he wanted to play SEC football. And he had all these verses from the Bible that promised him that he would be successful if he just had his devotions and went to church and did the right thing. And he ended up getting a back injury and never making it. And his spiritual life collapsed because he thought Jesus was supposed to save him from failure. And what Jesus wants to do is to save him from his what? His sins. And that's what he was doing when he gave him this back trouble. Everybody following me? Many people today think Jesus is here, that what the Gospel means is to remove the consequences of my bad choices. He certainly can do that. Hallelujah. But that's not His mission. If that's the only reason why you're coming to Him is to have your consequences removed in your life, you're not going to be saved because you're not coming to Him for the reason why He was born into this earth to save you from your, from your sins. Some people come to Jesus and just add Jesus to all their other gods. This is a real problem in Asia. They just take Jesus and stack Him next to Buddha and Confucius and Muhammad. And the missionaries have to deal very, very tenderly but very bluntly about this. If you just want to put Jesus in addition to all your little gods, name, namely yourself, <laughs> He's not your God. You're your God. And Jesus has come to save you from that. He has come to save people from doing what's right in their own eyes. He came to deal with the root of the problem. That root 
was seen in Genesis chapter 2. Everything's created perfectly. And in Genesis chapter 3, everything collapsed. Why? Sin. That's why it collapsed. He's not, did not come to give the good news of instead of socializing with bad people in the world, now you just want better friends and so you want to socialize and hang around professing believers. That's not the good news. It's not simply massaging your guilt without dealing with the issue of sin. All of these things and more could be the initial motivation to coming to Jesus. But if those are the initial motivations, when you do draw near to Him, He will begin to deal with your sin. And He did that with every person in the Gospels who ever came to Him. Many of them came to Him initially out of bad motivations. But after hearing His Word, they were drawn into the right motivation to call upon His name to be saved, understood from our what? Our sins. Salvation involves our justification. You must be declared righteous based on the merit of Christ. It involves our sanctification. This is a progressive work. This isn't an overnight work. This isn't a snap your fingers and you become great in this particular area. It's progressive. It's growth. It's a growth that makes us more and more free from the dominion of sin, which has been broken in our justification. It does not remove our sin. Our sin nature will never get better. It will always be against God. It will always be trying to deceive you. But can we be made more and more free from its Lordship over us that has been snapped? The answer to that is what? Yes. That's called sanctification. And then there is glorification. And that is that ultimate conformity into the image of Christ. Folks, this is why Christ came. And that's really the good news. The good news is there is somewhere where I can go. Not in me. Not a near friend. Not a moral person. Not a religious person. Not a ritual. Not someone sprinkling water over your head. Or dunking you in baptism water. Not by me praying enough. Or me doing enough good things. All that centered where? Me. But it's Him. It's outside of us. And it's not a procedure. It's a person. And He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And He is ready and willing to hear you. To save you from your sins. He is ready and willing to hear believers. To forgive their impurities and to save them from our what? Our sins. And He is ready and listening to God the Father to say, Go get them. And when He hears that, He will come off the throne of God and come through the clouds to this earth. What is He going to do when He comes to this earth? He's going to save 
people and claim salvation for the whole creation because He bought it at the cross of Christ. This is what it means to be saved by faith. To be saved by faith is to believe that the risen Lord is able to do what He has promised you. This is what it means to be being saved by faith. We are to live and walk being persuaded that the promises that He has given to believing people, He has the ability to do and will do. This is what it means to be ultimately saved by faith. Is that at that point, we will enter into the fullness of all the promises fulfilled in Christ. Jesus gave a parable of two men who went into the temple to pray. We could say both of them were religious because they were where? They were in the temple. Both of them knew that the temple was the place to approach God. And they went up to the temple to pray. And one was a very meticulous, detailed Pharisee. And the other was an unclean publican. The Pharisee stood... Isn't it amazing? Jesus heard this, right? He's giving this parable. He heard this. Pharisee stood and prayed to himself. Did you hear that? He wasn't praying to God. He's praying to himself. Because his eyes were on himself. Listen to his prayer. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Extortioners. I'm not an extortioner, unjust, I'm a righteous man. Adulterers, I don't commit adultery. Or even this, what? Folks, his eyes are all horizontal. He's not comparing himself to God. God, I thank you that I fast twice in a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. That's an amazing statement. But this poor publican, who we could say wasn't doing all those things, this publican, who was standing afar off, now note, the Pharisee saw him afar off. The publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes into heaven. And the pain was so great in his inner man that he smote himself on the breast. And this is all he said. God... Be merciful to me. A what? That's all he said. Now as far as I know, this publican didn't stand up and leap through out the temple. As far as I know, he took his bowed head and his tearful soul and he left. But Jesus said, I'm telling you something. Listen to what I'm telling you. This man went down to his house declared righteous. He wasn't righteous, was he? He was declared righteous. Rather than the public, rather than the Pharisee. And here's the reason. If you exalt yourself by looking at how good you are and how you're not like other people, you're not exalting God, you're exalting who? 
yourself. You'll be abased. But if you would humble your pride and you would know that you need mercy and you would draw near to Him, Jesus just says matter-of-factly, I'm telling you, I did not cast Him away. I declared Him what? I declared Him righteous. That is the type of man to whom the Lord will look to. The Lord is not reluctant to save us from our sins. That's the nature of His calling. That's why He came. The only problem is you won't go to Him for Him to save you from your sins. And Jesus told them that. You will not come to Me. But if you would go to Him, and all you have is all impurity, or as a believer, that's all you see is impurity in your life, He will forgive you of your sins. He will declare you righteous. And He will begin that wonderful process of a new creation inside of you and continually be saving you from your sins until the day you see the fullness of the promises fulfilled and you see Him as He is and you will be like Him forever and ever. Let's pray.